Hi, I'm Alan, a member of Association Anesthetist Trainee Committee and also the podcast lead for Association. Thanks for listening to the Coffee and the Gas podcast and this is the first episode on our annual Congress 2023 series. I'm delighted to be joined in Edinburgh today by Dr Caroline Corbett. Caroline is an anaesthetist in South Africa. She is currently serving as the current president of the South African Society of Anesthesiologists, also known as SASA, as well as being medical director and co-founder of a medical startup company, for which has multiple awards for entrepreneurship and product development. She is here at Annual Congress 2023 to talk about human-centric innovation and why people must matter most uh, within that. We'll be discussing this as well as how she maintains a work-life balance amongst all the other things she does. So thank you very much for joining us today, Caroline. Uh, let's start off a bit about your background. Whereabouts in South Africa did you grow up? Um, how did you end up becoming a doctor and an anaesthetist? Thanks, Alan, and thanks very much for the opportunity to chat to you and your membership. So I grew up in Johannesburg in South Africa, so it's um, more central and um, one of the clo- coastal areas. I um, currently live in Cape Town, so we did eventually move to the coast. I landed up studying medicine because there really wasn't anything else I wanted to study and I was fortunate enough to be accepted but financially it was extremely difficult I didn't come from a particularly wealthy home and um, I was the first of what would be um, a doctor in our family anesthesia was definitely not on my radar from the beginning not even a little and it wasn't until I worked at the Red Cross Memorial Children's Hospital in Cape Town as an intern and I was mentored by Professor Adrian Bosenberg who's now at Seattle Children's Hospital that I realized anesthesia is just the most phenomenal space to be in to really make um, a difference in the perioperative space and specifically in the patient journey. So my interest was in um, the, the admission to discharge road to recovery and how anesthesia could impact that space so after having worked as an intern in anesthesia it was it was definitely it was set for me I had a a special interest in airway management already from having spent time in the pre-hospital space in the military and um, it it was it was quite a natural step then to move into anesthesia Wow, that sounds like a very interesting route to, to becoming an anaesthetist. Um, although I think a lot of people have very similar opinions in terms of, I, I started medical school not actually knowing what an anaesthetist did or what an anaesthetist does, but um, obviously I had amazing teachers and that's how I ended up um, becoming one today. Uh, so you're the president of SARSA. How did you, how did that role come about? What inspired you to do that? Um, so inspiration is, is definitely part of it. Uh, strong arm coercion is, is the remainder. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, I, I, had, I, had, I had moved to Cape Town and I was already a SASA member and had been for many years. We have a very high penetration of membership in South Africa. We're fortunate enough to have a strong society. So most anaesthetists are members of SASA. And uh, what I didn't really understand is how they could, could help me as an anaesthetist, it sounded crazy, but it was more a a team you were part of than a committee that you could work towards achieving goals with. I started to get involved in ambulatory anesthesia and the business side of anesthesia and anesthetic practice. 
and particularly the ethics and legalities around alternative reimbursement models and fee-for-service in South Africa in the private sector. I was extremely frustrated with a, with a model that I was developing that um, was being hijacked by, by corporate entities that were going to break the rules. So I made a lot of noise with Sasa and I demanded that they assist me. And I think to a degree, they felt it was easier to have me on their side than on the receiving end of my emails. (laughs) So I was asked to join the private practice business unit, which I did, and subsequently was elected as convener or chair of that that unit, which is their largest business unit at Sasa. And from there, I was elected onto the um, National Council and ultimately voted in as our vice president, which is by definition president-elect. So I am a year into my term now. I mean, I think it's, you know, being part of the association UK, I share similar opinions that, you know, Anesthetists come together incredibly well. For a specialty where we work quite individually, we also show amazing teamwork, I think. Um, and that sounds like sort of what your experience was. Sidetracking to your other role, how did you end up becoming a founder of a medical tech startup? What inspired you to do that? So perhaps having grown up in a, in a relatively resource-constrained home um, and then a resource-constrained country, I was always looking at things thinking, maybe if we did it this way, it will work better. And I was fortunate enough to have a father who was an engineer, although not a practicing one, and he didn't stereotype that girls shouldn't be in the garage and fiddling around with um, toolboxes, and he enabled me to build a lot of what I thought might work if there was a problem in the house or um, a plumbing issue or uh, um, any kind of, of structural problem that I thought I could maybe fix, he would help me in, in making sure that we could try and give it a go. I entered a few competitions and and won a few awards as a scholar and it's always been something that's been a passion of mine is why should we accept that something doesn't work or doesn't fit or doesn't service a need or a community? And specifically in South Africa, our communities have been so divided for so long. Sometimes innovation is the only way to connect them because you can collaboratively sit and find solutions from completely polar opposite sides of a fence. And sometimes that solution is take the fence down. So I've loved the space from very early on and the, um, my husband has come from a similar space, but his, his was just in a pre-hospital setting, and he was very involved in um, procurement screening of device and tech for private ambulance service in South Africa. So when we had continuously been whining and whinging about the lack of appropriate technology in the video laryngoscope space, we decided, well, why on earth don't we just try and design it ourselves? And that was really the beginning of what was a cool piece of tech that we 3D printed into a prototype and suddenly realized it worked, and it worked really well. And there were huge applications from a software perspective, and it morphed out of that into a company, into an umbrella company, and into something that we felt could really make a a difference in the innovation space. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing being frustrated by what's currently available, but it's a completely other thing to actually do something about it. So that's that's, uh, that's an amazing thing. Um, whilst reading your bio on our on our Andrew Congress website, I'm amazed at the number of things um, you're not only involved in, but clearly excel in. How, how do you find the time or how, how, what's, how, what techniques do you have to balance all these different commitments? 
Sure, Ellen. Um, I don't. I'll be, I'll be honest <laughs> okay. with you. I, I think I, I, I do talk quite a bit to, to scholars, to students, to registrars, to our own membership. And I have um, spoken a lot at w- women empowerment forums, women in medicine, women in anesthesia. I think that we need to be very honest about the fact that we don't do it well all the time. That we might um, rapidly single task well, but rapid single tasking often means that the, the balls you've got up in the air, you drop them every now and again. And when things are at their busiest, or I've overcommitted, which I'm known to do, because because I'm extremely passionate about many, many areas, um, I just hope that, and I've been fortunate enough, that they either bounce, or I've got an incredible support network in my colleagues, in my team at SASA, and specifically in my husband and my children, that they catch them for me, and that they're not judgmental about the fact that they dropped in the first place. So I have super, super support, amazing teams, and um, I am very, very rigorous about my time management and my allocation to tasks. I'm getting much better at saying no to things, but I'm also very much more honest about saying specifically to parents or to women who want to have children, that there's a time and a place for everything. You can do anything. As an individual, you absolutely can do anything you want, but you just can't always do it at the same time. So for me, it's less about balancing everything at the same time and more about managing the time you have and realizing that sometimes you need to stagger your stagger your things that you want to be passionate about. Yeah, I think that's incredible, honest advice. Uh, I think particularly for Myself as a trainee, when I get offered, you know, a project here or, or some kind of um, quality improvement there, is it, I find it very difficult to say no, um, and sometimes that is probably the right thing to do, or at least make sure you have the correct support network available, which it sounds like you have an incredible support network around you yourself. Um, but you know, I, I think it's it is important that we we also point out that. On the outside, it may look like we do all these amazing things, but behind us, there's a lot of you know other people helping us do that, and also sometimes we we aren't able to balance these things as well. Uh, as I'm learning, doing exams, job, <laughs> podcasting, etc. Yeah, I could ask yeah. you the same question. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> We're swans. Yeah. That's what we are, mm-hmm. and and it's a good analogy for. Um, the UK because um, my mum and all lives near some black swans and I watch them and I see them because those legs paddle so frantically to look (laughs) so elegant gliding along. So for those uh, currently listening who are unable to attend annual congress and listen to your talk, you uh, discussed human-centric innovation as well as the role technology has in societal growth. Would you be able to sort of briefly outline what you mean by human-centric innovation and how did this exactly become an area of interest for you? So my uh, frustration aside from um, technology not being able to be available and accessible to all communities that might need it, specifically in the healthcare space, my other frustration was the fact that we had an industry push where technology was foisted upon us and it wasn't necessarily fit for purpose. It neither had the longevity required to be future-proofed so that it was still relevant and uh, contextually impactful in years to come. But also, it didn't actually speak to either the user interface or the user experience that we actually are allowed to demand of technology these days. So the talk was to get people to just look at technology differently 
and specifically take an active role in innovation, whether it is being critical of what we have and constructive in suggestions as to how to improve it, or whether, and what I would advocate, is, is clinician-driven, grassroots-up um, healthcare innovation with a focus constantly on the user interface, the user experience and remembering that the consumer is not necessarily in healthcare, the person picking up the piece of equipment, but the person on the receiving end of that. And then because people are not isolated islands of being that are static, remembering that that person who's going to pick up the equipment has to learn how to use it, has to remember how to use it, has to be able to give input into the data that will make it a constructive piece of equipment, and then take into account the ecosystem that that individual is, is um, plugging into with the, with the technology that they're using. The last piece of the talk is to remind people that we are innovating currently for the population that sits around us. And with climate change, with, um, with artificial intelligence taking over our space and our autonomy and creating a situation where perhaps the tail is wagging the dog at a very rapid pace and perhaps even growing its own legs at this stage, we need to start regulating our innovation space, particularly in the artificial intelligence and be accountable for what we innovate, that just because we can doesn't mean we should innovate in that space, because then we lose the human centricity altogether, and the population that comes after us is left to bear the brunt. So it wasn't to um, scare people, but rather just to get them to approach innovation in a more holistic manner. So just touching upon artificial intelligence, Sarah, you actually mentioned in your talk that AI has a greater chance of destroying civilization than, than any war would do in the next hundred years. Um, and it kind of leads on to my next question that you know, a lot of people are quite skeptical of the role technology has um, in future development and growth, particularly around job automation. Around job automation. Um, do you, I mean, do you think these concerns are valid given what you spoke about? I don't necessarily believe that if we can watch the space and curate the space that artificial intelligence is currently taking over and owning and driving, um, that, it, that it's a bad thing at all. In fact, I think that the, the capacity for real effective altruism in the space of artificial intelligence is, 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 is very tangible and we're seeing that already. As far as replacing jobs, definitely we'll see some of what the first industrial revolution saw. We're seeing it already. But if we take a proactive curatorship role there, those jobs can be replaced by supervision of AI versus subservience to AI. It's the subservience that uh, speaks to the replacement of the individual versus what I would love to see, which is the ability to collaborate with AI and constructively find collective solutions using the best of both sides, not one replacing another. Uh, there's, there's a really quite interesting slide you had in your presentation where you actually asked ChatGPT about what the dangers of AI are, and it actually quite nicely and succinctly summarized it. And I feel if, if AI itself is aware of its own dangers, I feel like we could probably do a better job of, Absolutely. of regulating it. Absolutely. It's not difficult to plug data into a system and ask whether it's going to end well or not. Um, so, and again, touching upon a theme of your talk, um, you know, do you think 
in terms of the financial drivers, we sometimes um, ignore you know these, these kind of regulation aspects, particularly your things like AI. Um, you know, where we're so driven by you know, how much money is something going to make, do we sometimes ignore these things? Absolutely. It's it's a case of the right and the left hand not talking to each other or actively ignoring each other. So it is, it's, a, it, it's, it's, it's akin to the law is not always just. We innovate at a pace that generally far exceeds the capacity to regulate because in this space regulation um, itself is regulated. So you can't just come up with a new law. It has to be tabled, it has to be discussed, it has to be openly voted on and in the background the process is ongoing and it's far exceeding even what the original table discussion was covering. If you look at the acts and the various laws that exist already in artificial intelligence um, usage, both here in the States, South Africa is very far behind with that, uh, we're still stuck on social media, it's, it's already outdated. And by the time it's released, we, we, we're just not catching up enough. And it's not necessarily entirely financial, it's bureaucratic. And it's the fact that we have a human system that's trying to regulate an artificial system. We need to actually look at the social anthropology around that and how it applies to the behavioral economics that have got to employ that. They're definitely financial drivers. There's such an enormous amount of money required to regulate AI when there's such an enormous amount of money being made by it being unregulated. So you certainly have a perverse incentive with financial drivers sitting in the background. Those are unavoidable. So we're going to have to try and find ways to get ahead of that. Mm -hmm. You also spoke a bit about your talk about you know, what exactly drives innovation and you know certain events um, which have sped up the rates of innovation, uh, particularly sort of going back to COVID and I don't know what things were like in South Africa, but certainly in the UK, it almost felt like the speed at which we were able to, you know, push forward or push through um, certain innovations, you know, you know, basic small things in just in terms of how we, you know, did things, certain process in the hospital, something which may have taken, you know, months or even years seemed to be able to go through within days or weeks. Uh, do, do you think, you know, sometimes it takes big events uh, such as uh, a pandemic or even wars, etc for things to get pushed forward, you know, I feel like there is there was a lot to learn from COVID. Do you, do you agree with that? Absolutely. I must be honest, I try to not ponder too much about it because it, it really depresses me. Mm. I'm an absolute um, possibilist, not necessarily an idealist, but a possibilist. And I had real hope that we were going to take huge lessons out of that mm -hmm. space. Not just the universal collaboration and the international open sourcing of great innovations, but the ability to look at what can be done if we connect with each other without the financial drivers taking over. They, they found us, definitely in South Africa, our corruption scale is so high that Index was never going to enable innovation or a pandemic to go <laughs> unchecked without a bit of financial siphoning. But in that instance, it was a very good example of how if you remove the bureaucracy of having to regulate, we had an explosion of innovation. We also had people taking space from their silos because they were confined to being at home and connecting with, with each other. I mean, we had 
actuaries and accountants commenting on N95 particulate aspirations and everybody was Googling everything. So the, the rate of learning, and that's why education is so key to innovation, not always good learning. I mean, there was a lot of real COVID nonsense out there. It, it was this beautiful substrate for completely disruptive innovation. In South Africa, all of the technology developed during that process was re uh, recalled. Um, it had wow. to be yeah. because none of it had gone through the Very same processes. Yeah. And we knew that there were problems, that there were issues with some of it. But at the time, they had to allow they had to allow some of it through and, and they are still in the process actually of recalling some of those devices. Okay. You spoke about education um, and you know the role that plays. In terms of sort of education models we have at the moment, I mean, personally, I don't find them <laughs> particularly helpful in terms of forward thinking and innovation. Um, you touched about some types of education models in, in your talk. Uh, do you want to just briefly touch upon those? So I think the most um, important one is looking at, at how do we combat people forgetting things. With all my screens open at any one time, if I'm not fully focused on something, my capacity to remember is grossly impaired. And if you add the fact that I'm not being reminded, I'm very unlikely to remember it in a week's time. And that's a human factor. It's a, it's a very predictable human factor. So learning is, is, is just as much about um, being able to effectively um, uh, engage with information and, and osmose that information as it is about retaining that information and the information meaning something to you so that you can actually consume it in a way that, that, that it's going to make a difference in your day. So because of how social media specifically and smart technology has revolutionized not just the advertising space, but the ability to engage with information rapidly. We've had to rethink the way we're teaching. And the way children's brains are developing as a result of that in engagement with those platforms, they're not able to learn the same way. And they don't concentrate in the same way. There's a lot of criticism around um, data that came out that elderly, uh, el not elderly people, but geriatrics, so over 70, they just they can't learn and they can't remember. They, they just process differently. They're marathon runners versus sprinters, whereas young kids are sprinters. You can just feed them stuff and it, they just suck it in. doesn't necessarily mean they understand it, but they're able to just suck it in. So now we're looking at a situation where we've got to take the same um, quantum of information and feed it to a very diverse community of people from an age, demographic, um, race, all of these different processes and, and specifically cultural diversity and expect them not only to be able to consume it comfortably but to be able to then utilize the information and the learning that has come out of it. So nano, nano learning is, is these microbytes of learning whether it is an animated infographic, a short video, a little podcast, a bite-sized, um, you know, a little soundbite and if you, if you feed those to people over short periods, you may not get a comprehensive, in-depth overview, but they're able to then go and consume their information in their own manner in a safe space. And you can rapidly repeat that information at intervals to combat the forgetting curve. Hmm. This is making me think about how to revise my future exams. <laughs> <laughs> in, your, in your talk, you mentioned that uh, anesthetists are, are natural innovators. And sort of touching upon that phrase, 
how have you taken sort of what you've learnt in your sort of business and entrepreneurship roles, roles and applied it to your medical practice? And also, how have you taken your medical practice and applied it to you know, your director roles within your tech company? That's a great question, actually. And the process that's taught me the most about innovation and that I think I employ the most techniques-wise in innovation is being a mum, actually. More so even than being an anaesthetist because of not just the challenges but the need to constantly innovate a system and then be part of a system that in many instances is failing horribly (laughs) and then be a leader in that system. So that actually has been paramount to, to being really useful in both the innovation space and the anesthesia space. But the privilege, and it has been such an enormous privilege, to have the opportunity to step into an innovation space. And I always say to my husband, if every innovation we create fails horribly, I will still have not a single regret because of how much I've learned through the people and connecting with individuals that are nothing nothing like med- medical doctors and clinicians and then the ability to resonate with such a diverse community has really enabled me to resonate better with my patients and the diversity that they bring to my day i'm able to look at how they are consuming the pre-med information how they how they look at me when i'm trying to obtain consent um, and and how they they're taking that information I've, I've learned so much about brand and that as anesthetists we are terrible about the product that actually we're selling whether you're in a fee-for-service model or a state sector model you're actually selling a product to a consumer whose life is on the line yet we actually don't even know the first thing about brand management so the overlap of a, of a, a commercial space an innovation space a maternal space and an anesthetic medical space um, has really enriched my life and and as i said before I, it's it's been an enormous privilege to be able to take my hats off and put them back on depending on where I am. So for doctors or anaesthetists in particular who are interested in moving into tech or technology, do you have any tips or can you direct them towards any sort of resources that would help them or enable them to do so? Firstly, I think they should just stand against a wall and repeatedly butt their head against a wall. (laughs) (laughs) And if they can do that, for yeah. a few minutes and, and still have a good sense of humor and faith in themselves yeah. and believe that they will get through that wall and they, they're definitely going to make it. It's a, it's a difficult space. It's hugely enriching. So my first, my first set of, um, of advice, and I think advice is quite a, uh, I would feel both condescending and patriarchal to give it because I'm still learning. But what I can tell them from my learnings is that um, they mustn't give up that it's in each and every one of us. I can't stress that enough. They're doing it on a micro level every day. That they know best. They might not necessarily know how to achieve that solution, but they know best because they are making the best decision for their patients every day. We um, partnered with a technology um, hardware incubator, and we very early on um, went to a rapid development prototype um, company. So as soon as possible, protect your IP, close your circle as far as information sharing if you want to commercialize your idea. If you're not planning to commercialize and 
um, have a financial vested interest right the way through, then IP protection is less of a concern. But partner with trusted people, partner with people that have the same vision as you. Even if they disagree with you, even if they tell you ideas rubbish, their vision needs to be the same because your why needs to resonate with them. If you can't tell them your story, then and they can't really listen and understand it, you need to walk away and find someone who, who hears and sees you. Uh, and it's often very difficult because they're going to look at it with financial markers and you're looking at it from a human-centric perspective because by nature we're human-centric with doctors. So um, my, my last piece of advice is, is if you're going to stay the, um, or my last learning, is we decided to start a company and try and see it to the end. Some people might just want to do the sexy stuff, which is to sit in an ideas think tank and innovate from a concept perspective. That doesn't mean that you're not still seeing that concept through, and you must definitely get involved to whatever capacity or degree you can or financially are able to. Um, but you're going to often have to create your own opportunities and find your own way. If you want to start a company, get the business side looked after by somebody that knows the business side or make sure that you're learning so that you're signing your own checks all the time. Industrialization is, is the process that takes you from your prototype to an actual scalable model that's going to be toolable, manufacturable, and then ultimately commercialized. That process is, is crucial and you'll need an experienced company to do that. And never ever think that it's about the end product. It's about the vision and the vision involves a journey. And the journey is where you learn and make mistakes. And um, I've, I've got a great love of failure from the point of view that my greatest learnings and my only success has generally come when I failed along the way because it inspires you. Yeah. And if you, if you can't fail, I don't believe you can actually succeed. That's uh, some great and amazing advice there. I think not just for, um, you know, if you want to work in tech or in finance, but I think just in general in terms of the support network have around you, the people you work with, um, making sure you surround yourself with, uh, you know, the best people and the people who are there for you all the time, I think is incredible advice. So now going back to your medical practice, um, for, for those listening who mostly will probably be training these tests, a lot of us would be interested to hear just what anesthetics is like in South Africa and what the training is like. Could you able just to comment on it, for example, you know, what things you think are done well or what things you feel like could be improved? So South Africa is uh, an absolute mixing pot, not just of, of culture and um, ecosystem and biodiversity, but it's a real mixing pot of healthcare and healthcare resources and healthcare access. Um, Cape Town, Johannesburg, the major centres are, um, are hubs for the resource poor north of um, um, Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa specifically relies on South Africa for complex medical care in many instances because it's just not available in their country. So our patient load is enormous um, for a much lower um, resource allocation. As I said in my talk, we roughly about 2.7 to 3 per 100,000 um, people able to deliver anesthesia. So it's grossly under what is recommended as an acceptable level. And um, as a result, it's very focused on service delivery. We don't have a choice but to focus predominantly on service delivery, whereas your trainees might um, have 
a much bigger focus on publications, research, um, administrative duties, and um, uh, more of a regulatory space of, of how to look at the inner workings of a department and what goes into healthcare. Ours have an extremely limited amount of time to do their um, research paper. It often run, uh, results in their actual registration as specialists being delayed because they haven't yet finished their, their uh, master's or their MED for publication, which is a component of their um, requirement to register as specialists even if they've passed their exams. We, um, we have a, a resource deficit in that we can't um, appoint in posts. So uh, we have some medical officers and, and registrars that are doing far more calls than they should be purely because we can't appoint new people. We, we have extremely long waiting lists for positions. So those that are in posts are holding on to their posts desperately and yeah. still trying to study and deliver services. From a patient load, I've been so lucky to study in South Africa from a point of view that if you're going to see it, you'll see it in yeah. South Africa. The pathology and the gift that patients bring to you on a daily basis, you only really read about in textbooks elsewhere. So we were hugely fortunate to train in those environments with a lot of um, consultant um, care and teaching that was hands-on and with a level of experience that I don't think you see easily outside of South Africa. Our academic departments are still very strong. They're battling with all of the other socio-political um, issues that come with it and the post constraints. But we've still got pockets of excellence, especially from a resource and publication perspective. And our access to, to large volumes of patient data because of our numbers is also quite unique. We have a huge trauma load. We are one of the, I think we're in the top five most violent nations in the world. Um, it's not something I like to say we're winning at. It's not quite winning the Rugby World Cup, which we're going to do, <laughs> yeah. by the way. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> but uh, we have to be we have to be honest about the fact that the prohibition on alcohol in South Africa. For those of you who don't know, it was a full prohibition during lockdown during COVID. Resulted in for the first time in the history, Baraguana's trauma unit was empty. Wow. We usually yeah. run. Um, uh, in excess of 50 patients coming through, at least half of which may require ventilation and the other half will require surgical intervention. A huge number of gunshots and a huge number of blunt and penetrating trauma. So the trauma load on registrars is huge. Winter is burn season. We, because of our, our lower income housing being very lagging as far as structure goes, it's generally um, townships or shanty towns and um, paraffin gas burners are the way that they stay warm or with fires or cooking. So we see lots of pediatric burns, lots of adult burns, and um, a huge amount of trauma and, um, and motor vehicle accidents as well. Our obstetrics, I uh, was chatting to some of your consultants mm. the other day, and I think they're battling to understand our patient load. So we would look at about 50,000 deliveries at Baraguana per annum, and um, a normal obstetrics call at, at Baraguanath, one of our maternity units, a 16-hour obstetrics call would usually involve 15 to 16 Caesars. And you would leave a waiting list behind, and those will all be urgent, complex cases because it's a, it's a tertiary or quaternary facility. So it's um, rapid-paced. There's a huge expectation on service delivery um, with a, a very difficult often quite toxic environment because of the political noise. 
but I do think still that what comes out of South Africa as an anaesthetist is extremely well generally qualified, very resilient, purely by design, and um, there's a degree of anti-fragility where they might have been broken a few times along the way because the support wasn't there. But I would never, ever um, say no to being anaesthetized by a South African anaesthetist. I can say that with confidence. Unfortunately, we're exporting them at a rate of knots at the moment. Mm-hmm. On that last bit, I think we're experiencing similar issues um, to Australia, um, who hopefully won't win the Rugby World Cup either. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, I'm not, I'm not sure how confident I am at the moment about it, but we'll see. Maybe this, this podcast might come out after and then I, I can gloat about it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's all we have time for today. It's been incredibly interesting talking to you, Carolyn. Thank you very much um, for coming on to our podcast. Uh, there's certainly a lot to learn, not just about medicine, but also outside of medicine and, and how we innovate just only within our practice but within our lives as well so thank you very much and it's been a pleasure having you thanks so much